0: This is Jim Wills, and you are listening to the Crave Magazine Podcast, where we feed your soul with art. If you believe in yourself, what do you believe
1: in yourself? Finding success with music, I think it takes a lot of focus. It takes a lot of sacrifice. The sole secret to success in the art world is to keep making art.
0: Live the moment and go on vacation as much as possible because you never know when the work's coming. Do the best work that you you can and put it out there where people can see it. All right, today on the podcast we have a gentleman who has a long history and career of uh, work in and out of the art world. He's an photography instructor. He is a photographer himself, which we'll get into. He's a world traveler, and he is a huge mentor of mine, and I'm very pleased to welcome Tom Fink to the podcast. Welcome, Tom. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my God. Oh, i got to live up to something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I usually start off the podcast with an inspiration, something that inspires the artists I talk to. Uh, it could be a quote. It could be an image. It could be another artist, uh, a movie, anything that you carry with you through life that inspires you.
1: I would say... Two people, um, Ralph, actually three people. Kay. Ralph Eugene Meatyard, I wrote my MFA thesis on him. He was an optometrist, but he was an amazing photographer. W. Eugene Smith, Kay. because I think he was one of the most amazing photographers during his time frame. I guess now I'm going to have to say four. Um, Henri Cartier-Bresson, Gary Winogrand. Hiroshi Sugimoto. <laughs> the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Okay. Um, and, I've, you know, movies, um, Barcelona, uh, New York City, Japan, Papua New Guinea. Way too much to kind of make it really narrow.
0: Okay. So I heard several, I heard several photographers there, early photographers, mm-hmm. and uh, also places. So we'll get into both of those, but let's talk a little bit about your story. How did you become... Uh, photographer and instructor and and how did you end up where you are today?
1: Ooh long story. So my undergraduate degree was in biochemistry. I went to school and went back to school to get a master's degree. Uh, Worked as a research scientist for a while. Um, Always played soccer and coached which in a way I kind of think is teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, I minored in art both in college as an undergraduate, and then all my elective courses in graduate school were art courses. Uh, Worked for a while, um, decided it wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to teach and make art. Went back to school to get an MFA, got it. They threw me in the classroom. I knew my material, but I don't know if I was the best teacher. So I went back to school at Arizona State to work on my degree in education. Got all the way through, wrote my thesis, never defended it because I didn't want to have PhD behind my name because it would make me an administrator and I wanted to be in the classroom and
0: been teaching ever since. Yeah, that's right. I forgot you are Dr. Fink.
1: Kind <laughs> of, sort of, AVD, all but dissertations.
0: Okay, uh, ABD. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and so you've been teaching ever, ever since?
1: I started teaching when, actually I started teaching in, the, my god, a long time ago. When I was in graduate school at the University of Cincinnati, I taught part-time at the University of Dayton, which is where I got my undergraduate degree. Um, I also taught at the Dayton Art Institute. I taught photography in both places. When I graduated from the University of Cincinnati, I decided I wanted to teach full-time. Those opportunities didn't exist where I was. Went out with a bunch of my buddies, got out a map of the United States, closed my eyes, put my hand down, and ended up in Tempe, Arizona. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I worked as a jeweler for a while, taught part-time when I was out there, Um, ended up working full-time in a museum, Uh, started as an installationist. Uh, went to an assistant curator because I liked to write then was promoted to curator and then was promoted promoted assistant director Uh, decided I couldn't schmooze people so I quit
0: (laughs) (laughs) and how'd you end up in Colorado?
1: Um, when I left Arizona I got offered a position in the South Pacific, I didn't even know where Guam was I I was there for two years I was Not happy, I suppose is the best way to put it. I did learn how to dive, scuba dive, by the way. Um, I traveled extensively throughout the South Pacific, and a friend of mine called me one day and said, Hey, I hear you're miserable. Would you like to come back to the United States? And I went, yeah uh, I left Guam and it was 94 degrees. I landed in Denver and it was four degrees below zero. I got off the plane in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt. Oh my goodness <laughs> And I've been here ever since. yeah so.
0: yeah. Wow. Well, I met you uh, going back to school to get my bachelor's and um, I think my first class with you was a photographic history class. It was. And I had spent several years, for almost 20 years, as a photographer, but had never really had a lot of formal history training. So a lot of the photographers, even the photographers that you mentioned at the beginning here, uh, W. Gene Smith, those guys, were foreign to me. I had never heard of them, didn't know anything about that stuff. And you had a way of teaching what is, I think traditionally for most people, at least for me, is very rote, history. You had a way of, um, of, of helping to instill those names in us and helping to bring these people who are long dead alive and and make us fascinated by the photography so you collect you collect old rare photographs i do can you talk about how that how you got started i can Okay. Yes.
1: okay so i think i think as a hist- first of all thank you for the kind words um i love i love the history side of it i i don't think you can know where you're going unless you know where you've come from okay. and that ability to understand what came before helps you understand the work you make sure. and helps you talk about the work that you make and i think those things are really important with that aside um i've got you know a couple of daguerreotypes i've got an amber type i've got some cabinet cards i've got you know a couple a couple silver prints um, and i think it's important in the history side of it or even in the photo side of it that we can talk until we're blue in the face but when you hold it in your hand, it's a totally different experience. Sure. And to hold a daguerreotype, for those of you that don't know what they are, it's a small photograph on a polished silver copper plate that's very small and in a case. And when you open it, it's an object. And it's beautiful. And you see a projection and you're like, yeah, right, whatever. And then you open it up and you're like, oh, my God. God this is incredible and I think the first time I saw that I think that's what stirred me to go out and purchase things like that I mean I go to the thrift shops on Broadway and up in Wheat Ridge and pick through things and oftentimes they don't know what they have so I can buy a daguerreotype for $20 Mm. which again is a great teaching tool and I think for me as a teacher and I don't think I can separate being a photographer and being a teacher because I think if you don't photograph then you don't know what's going on in the contemporary world and you need that to, in order to be able to teach. Um, so I've picked up a William Henry Jackson photograph for fifteen dollars. I mean yeah it was damaged but it's still a William Henry Jackson photograph. Um, daguerreotypes, ambrotypes, silver prints by various photographers, some who are famous, some who are not so famous. But that ability to hold that piece in your hands I think is crucial. Yeah. Um, the nice thing about teaching where I'm teaching currently is I'm two blocks from the art museum. I can walk students across the street and say, this is what we need to look at. And the photography curator over there, Eric Paddock, is an amazing wealth of information, and he's always willing to talk to classes. He's always willing to make things happen if I need things to happen, and I can't I can't thank him enough as well. So, well, shout out to
0: Eric. Shout out to Eric. <laughs> yes, in the art museum, the Denver Art Museum, uh, and you know, I, in my art history class, we say a lot of paintings, and you're looking at all these paintings in textbooks and whatnot. And, and I remember this summer I went to Spain. And went to the Prada Museum, and when I got to see some of that work in real, hanging on the wall, it is a completely different experience. It is. Um, it's just amazing to see a Goya like hanging there, and realizing, seeing the texture in the paint, and realizing that this was painted several hundred years ago, and and what it meant to the artist at the time painting it. It just, it is a totally different experience.
1: It is, and. Um, one of the other instructors who I taught with for years here, Gene Wheeler and I used to take students to New York every year Mm -hmm. and we go to MoMA, we go to the Met we go to all these places and the classic is you go to MoMA and they're looking for the technical term is persistence of memory the students call it the melting clock piece by Salvador Dali and they've always seen it projected you know in really really large when in reality it's I don't know 9 by 13, it's really tiny, Yeah. and they turn around and they're like oh, wow and it's just that amazing light bulb that goes off when they see these things in person for the first time I mean, I was in Spain I've been in Spain the last couple of years and I went to the Prada and we you know, we did all those kinds of things and I was the same I mean, I walked into the Prada and I was like, you know, I was like my mouth was open I was just like, oh my God Oh, my God.
0: Yeah, yeah, there really are no words sometimes. Exactly, exactly. Well, I'm interested in, so you and I both are old enough to have existed on this planet before digital. Yes, we are. And, uh, <laughs> and even in school, the Art Institute, where you teach, where I went to school, has, has a dark room and taught dark room classes to, to students. But most photographers these days don't develop their own prints. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Because, and if I may, because these early photographers, that was the only way to show their work, to have that negative and then, okay, i got to do something with it, they would create a print from it. And then you had a limited number of prints uh, from that. There was no kind of mass reproduction 100 years ago the way there is today, and obviously no digital. And those are the prints that you're looking for as a collector, right? The original prints.
1: Yes, but, but the reality is a digital print is an original print. The only difference is is that it's printed from a file, and if everybody has the same file and the same set of inks and the same calibrated monitor and in the olden days a rip, then the print would always look the same. Right. Where in the dark room, and I did the Ansel Adams workshops and the Fred Picker workshops, it it's it's a different animal. Um, and I think you understand this. Even the students that I have this quarter understand it as well. You you go into the dark room and they make their first print and it's like, oh my god. And I don't want to say that the print is bad, it's not amazing. but. I think you have to handle that in such a way where you would say, well, what happens if you did this? What happens if you did this? And then two weeks later, they came out with the same image printed differently, and they're like, well, how come you didn't tell me this was so bad? Well, it's not bad. It's just bad in comparison to what you understand now. And I think that's the key. And I would say, you know, the classic example is the Moonrise Over Hernandez print by Ansel Adams. Mm-hmm. The original image, if you look at the original print, if you go down to the Center for Creative Photography in Tucson, where his archive exists, and you look at it, the sky's gray. The print's muddy. It's, I mean, it's nice print. It's a nice image. But then you look at the one where he decided to put his heart, his soul, his mind, everything into the print, and that's the one we see today. Yeah. You see that on the wall, and you're like, wow and it's true and and he talks about that when i did the workshop with him you know he said it's it's aligning i'm trying to think who said this aligning your heart your eye and your soul all together okay and it's not adams it might have been brisson it might have been when i can't remember who it was but i think it's true and i don't think it makes any difference what kind of gear you have if if you got rocks and sticks, you make art with rocks and sticks. Right. If you right. got an iPhone and that's all you got, you make art with your iPhone. If you got an 8x10 view camera and that's your that's what you make your art with. I mean it just it's a tool and it's a tool for expression and who cares what the
0: tool is. Sure. Sure. Now speaking of tools, you shoot primarily black and white photography still. Is that correct? I do. I do. With traditional film cameras? With traditional film cameras. Um, do you now? I, I'm you obviously have a smartphone. I do. Why do you still shoot black and white film photography? Why do I? Yes, so my
1: answer to that is going to be I love the darkroom, okay. Um, I like the tangible quality of the print. I don't, I personally don't think, although it's getting close, a digital print. Matches an analog print. Okay. Um, Each analog print that comes out of the darkroom is slightly different, Mm -hmm. which you don't get with a digital print unless you're full with a file. Right. Um, There's a record. Your negatives are a record. The moment you hit the delete button on a digital file, the record is lost. Sure, sure. Um, I think that may become an issue at some point in time. What happens if and when programs don't read? raw files or JPEGs or TIFFs or whatever the case may be, then the record of all that information is gone. Yep. Where with negatives, and granted, you got to lug around binders full of negatives, the record is always there unless you destroy the film. Oh, but the film degrades over time. If it's nitrate, yes, um, and movies are a perfect example because they're being redone, but Ansel Adams negatives are still around. Yeah, yeah. Edward Weston's negatives are still around. Richard Avedon's negatives are still <laughs> around. W, I mean, they're all still around. Sure, sure, sure. As long as you, I think, as long as you take the time and the care to put them in a position to be stored properly, to be cared for, that they're going to last. Yeah. I mean, and when I die, <laughs> nobody probably cares about the work anyway. So.
0: <laughs> Oh, I'm sure you'll be written up in history books a long time now. (laughs) You know, for anybody who hasn't ever been in a dark room, there is something really magical about it. I mean, we understand the chemistry and how it actually creates the print, but just seeing that white piece of paper actually create something when you pull it out of the out of the bath and it's like, wow! It's just it it's the very first time. It is magic. It is magic. I mean, it's like you'll never you'll never recapture that again. It's so amazing, and I can remember the very first time I developed the print, and I knew it was gonna happen, I knew it was gonna come, but just to see it the very first time is is incredible. It's
1: magic, it's magic. Um, And I think, you know, again, I think the reality is is that it is magic for some people. And then they realize that the same skills that they learn in the darkroom are applicable to Photoshop or Mm -hmm. Lightroom or Mm -hmm. Capture One or whatever digital program you opt to use so the skills are transferable, and I think that's the other important side, is that some people say, well, I don't understand why I have to go work in the darkroom. Well, so that you have a basic cursory understanding of where all of this stuff came sure. from. And then you burn and dodge in the dark room, and then you're like, oh my God, that's the little magnifying glass in Photoshop, or that's the little hand in Photoshop. Yeah. And, and it works the same way. And you know, I think when we think of Photoshop, you know, we think of compositing and Maggie Taylor and those kinds of things, but I think if you understand, Jerry Ulsman did it all in the darkroom, and people were like, "There's no way," and I went, "Yeah, there's a way," <laughs> and he did it. And I think it's an, it's interesting to see how those photographers are transitioning, some from analog to digital, and. A lot from digital to analog. Um, I can tell you that when I travel, particularly to Asia, I would say seventy-five percent of the photographers that I meet there shoot
0: with film. Really? Mm-hmm. So nothing to say on that. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I, but I, but I think that you know the interesting thing is that you know when we you know especially Korea and Japan, when we think of them technologically, you know they got. The Samsung phone and Sony cameras and all the sensors and all the lenses and Canon and Nikon and whatever else you want to talk about. And then they go, Yeah, but man, these analog prints are really beautiful. And I don't want to tell some of them, I told you so. <laughs> but some of them I want to say, I told you
0: so. Sure, sure, sure. So,
1: it is interesting. And over there, they can repair anything. Yeah. I mean, you got an old Nikon F from 1960-something that you use as a hammer because it didn't work as a camera. They can fix them, and they're now commanding obscene prices, which yeah. just, I mean, I feel like packing all my Nikon, Nikon gear up, taking it over there, and making a killing.
0: So you're saying Nikon? Is that the correct pronunciation? In Japan, that's what they say. Okay, because obviously here we say Nikon. But Nikon sounds better. That's what they say (laughs) over there. So (laughs) the right way to say it. So you've you've had a long career as a teacher, as a photographer. Talk about one or two successes that you had that you're you're really proud of.
1: Photo wise, or just in general, in life. In life. I remember the first time I took an entire engine transmission apart. Put it back together, and it worked. I was stunned. <laughs> <laughs>
0: did you have missing parts at the end? I we did not. You... That's I good. I did not.
1: I did not. That's um, good. Successes. Um, I would say my first solo show was was probably pretty incredible. Where was that? Um, I don't even remember. It's been so long. Ago. Okay.
0: Just having that solo show. And yeah. Showing your work.
1: Showing the work. I think the other thing was I had a couple. I had two books published in two years ago now. Um, in Japan by um, a company called Sokusha who are considered one of the leading art book publishers in Japan and it was a long process about two and a half to three years they don't work from digital files so I had to make 170 exhibition quality analog prints for the books Wow! Um, and when I got them they're they're beautiful I mean, and it's almost like verification of everything that I've done over God knows how many years. Sure, sure. You know, they've sold pretty well. I still have some left. Hint. Um, <laughs> you can buy them on the website. Um, Online. But the I was stunned when I got the books, and I held the prints next to the, the books. Yeah. The, the prints nearly matched the book, and I was astounded. Um, it took three or four takes, but it was worth it. And they're be- the books are beautiful. They, he did, Mr. Ota did an amazing job.
0: I'm assuming photog- books on photography or yeah, photographic yeah. books. Yeah,
1: photo books, street street photo books, one um, on the Americas and one on Asia.
0: Okay. Can we find those on Amazon? Or
1: You can find them on Amazon, you can find them on PhotoEye, you can find them on my website. That means I get the profits instead of somebody else.
0: So what, what's your website? Let's just jump um, right in there.
1: Tom Fink, dot com.
0: Okay, com. We'll come back around that at the end, make sure everybody remembers that. W- what's one of the biggest lessons that you've learned in your art career? Patience. Patience, patience. Yep. Um, I think way
1: too often we want it to happen now. Sure. And sometimes it just doesn't happen. Now, <laughs> uh, you know, you get frustrated, you throw stuff across the studio, or maybe you don't. Maybe you tip the can to developer, or whatever it is. I mean, I think we're, we're all in that position. I mean, I print on a really regular basis, and there will be days where I'll go down in the dark room, and after 45 minutes, it ain't one of those days. Right. So I just pack everything up and do something else. And then there's other days where I'll go down at 7 o'clock in the morning and walk out at 10 o'clock at night not eating lunch, not eating, because you, when you get on a roll, you just
0: go. Right, right. The zone, when you get into the zone. The, the zone. Yeah.
1: That's probably pretty good. The zone. The system. zone. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to use photography yeah, parlance. Exactly. <laughs>
0: yeah, you know, and patience. one of the classes that I took with you, uh, I believe it was called Creative Concepts or something along those lines, where we actually, it wasn't so much a photography course. It was more of um, taking ideas. And what I loved about that course was you allowed the students to come up with our own concepts as a class of what we wanted to focus on each week. And and some of them were pretty random and some were really out there, but I think patience ties in with that too because coming up with a really sort of esoteric concept and how do I turn this I remember one that we did was uh, something along the lines of, you're too close, or you're standing too close, or something like that. And like it was really interesting to see how each student translated that into something photographic. Some people very literal to that, and some people so out there that it almost needed explanation of how that tied into the theme of that week. But that was something that required a lot of patience for me.
1: I love teaching that class. It's a, it's a difficult class to teach, but I think way too often in most educational institutions, things are very set in stone. Mm-hmm. Whether it's, a, and I'm not gonna pick on any class, or predict, but I'll use studio as an example, it's a studio class. There has to be a light here, and there has to be a light here, and there has to be something here, and there has to be something here. We're in a class where somebody says, the concept is, I don't know, peacefulness. You're like, how am I gonna make that function? Yeah. And I think you brought in, as I recall, a singing bowl.
0: I may have, yeah, I may have, yeah. And you started
1: rubbing your finger around the rim and the bowl starts to vibrate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I watched people in the class close their eyes and nearly fall asleep. So I again, I think the hardest thing is sometimes being able to make those conceptual ideas turn into something tangible in, in one sense or maybe projected in another sense or whatever whatever your ultimate goal is for the final product sure. And I think a class like that makes you think outside the box and when you graduate, you're going to have to think outside the box. If the photo editor or the editor says, I need this, and you're going, "I, I, 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 how am I going to do that? Well, let me, th-, you know, then you put those ideas together, and then you try to figure out how those ideas become something that's tangible for the art director.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I had the benefit, I guess, benefit, I don't know, But I I came into school sort of as a third year student where I didn't need to take a lot of those basic classes. i had already had a lot of that knowledge. Um, But you're right, a lot of of those basic classes, like the studio lighting, light goes here, light goes here, light goes here, is all left brain stuff. It's very analytical, it's very, this is how it's done. Learn the rules and then you can break them where that creative concepts class, I don't know if I told you, it was my favorite class that I've taken here.
1: My favorite class to teach. So.
0: <laughs> it was so right brain, It was so creative. It was so pushing the boundaries of what we, as students, thought were possible. It was fantastic. I wish every class was that, that, that that right-brained. Such a good class.
1: Well, I always found that students walked away from that class with really good friends. Yeah. Because you have to be very open in that class to a myriad of possibilities. I mean. And just because you're all photo majors doesn't mean that you're going to have 20 things that look exactly the same. I don't think we ever had anything where two projects were the same. Yeah. They were from one side of the spectrum to the other side of the spectrum. And that's what I liked about it because then people would look at that and they would go, oh my God, I never even thought about something like this. So then the next time... You would watch their project evolve into something that was way out of bounds from something that they were used to doing, which I thought was great.
0: Right, right. Yeah, that saying. Well, I actually remember now. I took the class on a guided meditation That's with that as well.
1: Meditation was the meditation was the um, was the theme.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I took the class on a guided meditation, and and it had nothing to do with photography. But it was it was like how can I, how can I, step out as far from my comfort zone. Yeah zone as possible. How can I do something that for me was very original and hopefully for the rest of the students was original and creative and uh, man, it was such a good class.
1: Yeah, I, I, I really like that class.
0: I really enjoy it. Uh, how How's being an artist affected the other areas of your life? I would say
1: boy, this is difficult. I would say in certain instances it definitely has affected things because at the drop of the hat, I'll take off and go someplace. Mm-hmm. Not that I didn't do that before. And I think the other thing is, as someone who picks up a camera, I can get down on my hands and knees and be photographing a crack in the pavement, and people walk by and they just kind of look oh, he's got a camera, it's okay. Right. So right. I think in a way that quote-unquote artist tag... Gives you a lot of leeway. Yeah. Where, if you were in a business attire, you wouldn't have that leeway. Oh, he's got purple shorts and an orange shirt. Oh, he's an artist. <laughs> right. Know, right. Which, I guess that's the best thing. Is you know, it it definitely gives you that leeway. Um, I think my training as a scientist has helped too because I'm not the person who waits until the last minute to try to get everything done, which fortunately or unfortunately happens with a lot of my artist friends. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, you know, if you would have just done two every week for the last six months, you wouldn't be panicking two weeks before everything is due. Right. Yeah, but we don't work that way. I work better under pressure. And
0: maybe no. Do you think that's an excuse that artists, people use in general, but artists in particular, like, like waiting for inspiration or waiting for that creative flow to happen, waiting to get into the zone?
1: Well, I would say for some people, yeah. I think for other people, it's just an excuse. I yeah. mean, when I took my first art history course, when I was in graduate school in Cincinnati, I had, a, I had an amazing art history teacher who actually kept me in the program because she was incredible. Um, very smart, articulate, great teacher. And I remember the ver- it was a contemporary American art history class. And she showed a Jackson Pollock painting, and I'm sitting in the front. I was like, "Yeah, right." And she just looked at me. She said, "What did you say?" And I said, "Yeah, right." I mean, I was a scientist. You know, I wasn't an artist. I had no background in Jackson Pollock. I had no anything other than it looked like somebody threw up on the piece of (laughs) canvas, which you kind of did, in a way. (laughs) And she didn't say anything. And the next week she came in with a big piece of canvas and four or five buckets of paint a smock and some sticks, and she looked at me and she put the smock on me and she said, if you think it's so easy, (laughs) and it ain't as easy as it looked, (laughs) so it's kind of a lesson that I learned that, you know, maybe the best thing to do sometimes is to shut your mouth and listen a little more often instead of reacting immediately. I mean, I understand it now, um, but I think in hindsight, that was a good lesson for me. Yeah. It was a really good lesson for yeah. me. Um, and believe it or not, I'm still in touch with this art history teacher who lives in just outside of Taos. Oh, that's fantastic. So, yeah, yeah. We talk to each other a couple times a year, so it's it's good.
0: Uh, one of the other things that we do at school that I think is really powerful, and I didn't do it enough before I went to school and now I I try to do it a lot more often is critiques. You put your work up there and basically stand naked in front of the class and let other people talk about your work. Um, Would you talk about critiques a little bit?
1: Certainly, I think critiques are essential. Um, I don't think it makes any difference if you're an accountant, uh, a stockbroker, an artist doesn't make any difference. I think a good a good person is always critiquing what they do, whether it's raising a child or the mechanic who fixes your car or you know the artist that produces a dance or a piece of music or something visual. Um, I think the hardest thing with critiques is that more often than not, the first words out of people's mouth are, I like it or I don't like it but there's no reasoning behind that. Right. Um, and I teach a photocriticism class, and I remember taking a photocriticism class from a critic who I wasn't particularly fond of, and I thought it made more sense for me to take a class from someone like that so that I got a different opinion, so that it made more sense to me to take it from someone who I didn't agree with as opposed to someone I did because I didn't think I would learn anything. Um, And I teach photo criticism and I teach and I talk about it over a spectrum, whether it's a photograph, a painting, any work of art, sculpture, dance, music, is that I break it down into four pieces and the four pieces are very straightforward and I think they help you understand and slow you down in the critique process. The first is, what do you see? And, you know, I'd say it's like a courtroom. Just tell me the facts. What do you see? Mm-hmm. And the second piece is, how does your eye move through? How does it move through the piece based on the information that you've provided before what you see? The third piece is, what do you think the interpretation of the piece is based on the two pieces that came before. Your interpretation or maybe possibly the artist's interpretation. And then the, th- the fourth piece is, do you find the piece successful based on the information you've provided? Okay. And I think what it does is it has a tendency to slow people down. Because everybody wants to jump to the third piece. Sure. You know, this is what it means and it's good or bad, but they haven't taken the time to sit down and look at the work and understand how they move through the piece visually. And I think that without having those two pieces, trying to jump to the last two pieces is nearly impossible. Yeah,
0: gosh, flood of memories coming back now <laughs> from that class. Okay. Yeah, lots of writing, <laughs> lots of writing. <laughs> Absolutely, so let's go through this four again. It's, what are the facts, what do you see? What do you see? How, how do you move how through how the How does your eye
1: move through the piece?
0: What is the interpretation? What is the interpretation? And then finally, Is it successful? Is it successful, okay. So those are great things, I think, to, to, to carry through with, with the critique. Um, someone once mentioned the difference between critique and criticism. Criticism is someone who comes from someone who has n- no clue about what they're talking about, where a critique comes from a peer in your profession, or someone who can objectively sit there and maybe go through those four steps.
1: I think the key is objective. I also feel, personally, that I like to show my work to people who aren't photographers because okay. I think the reality is is that if you show your work in a gallery situation or a museum or a book situation or whatever the situation is, is that it's not always going to be your peers that are going to look at the work. Sure. And I think their responses are very unique. And I think it gives us a lot of insight into the work maybe that we make or maybe that piece of insight sits in the back of our brain someplace and doesn't come forward, and the the non-peer says, oh my God, do you see this? Mm -hmm. And I think we saw it, but we didn't see it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, it was there, but we were kind of like, oh yeah. And now we're like, oh, oh yeah.
0: (laughs) Right, right, right. Why should we care about art? Why? Mm
1: -hmm. I think it heals Art heals? That's how I feel about it Um, What do you mean? I think when I'm down or I've had a bad day or anybody's had a bad day and I walk I I walk into the classroom and I see this amazing poster or I pick up this amazing book or I walk by graffiti on the side of the street it just changes me. makes me think about things. Um, I saw Sagrada Familiar in Barcelona, mm-hmm. and I'd always seen pictures of it. I mean, I knew it was big. I knew it was impressive. I walked in. I was not prepared. I was not prepared. I don't know how anybody
0: could be prepared for that yeah. monstrosity I mean, of... I don't even know what to call it. Yeah, it's it's, it's amazing. amazing.
1: And I watched people who were not Christian walk into that place, take their hats off, drop to their knees, and just be amazed. Mm-hmm. I mean, Muslims and Jews and Christians and, I mean, all sorts of people were just taken back, I suppose is the best way to describe it. Yeah, and. I think art can take you back you know I mean it I think it makes it makes you think and again you know it could be music it could be dance it could be in architecture it could be sculpture it could be two-dimensional it could be I mean who knows but I think you know you stand back and you just look at things and it's like wow wow
0: that was the uh yeah we went to Barcelona this as part of our Spain trip and and It might be the most amazing piece of architecture I've ever seen. It's just phenomenal, and the detail and and the workmanship and the fact that 120 years later they're still building it. It's just such an amazing piece of work. And the
1: model, I don't know if you saw the model where they hung the sandbags on it and it was done upside down. I was just like, how did you even think about that? I mean, it's like, even today, the architects are like, this is impossible it obviously is possible right. because it's built. It's done, yeah. It's, yeah, it's for incredible. Sure. I think I I love I love his architecture. I absolutely love his architecture.
0: Well what do you what do you hope to and you talked about long career and the books that you have and the work that can be left when you're gone. What do you hope to leave the world as an artist? Happier. Happier.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yep. I think that'd be great. If people look at my work and
0: smile. I'd be elated. You know, I find a lot of artists say that. You know, just as long as it makes people happy. Mm-hmm. That's great. And I think
1: even to kind of go off slightly on a tangent, I think even some of the work that's that's really brutal, like David Douglas Duncan the, from Vietnam mm-hmm. and W. Jean Smith's work from World War II and... Some of you know James Nachtwey's work. Not that it's gonna make me happy, but maybe it makes me happy that it doesn't. These kinds of things don't continue. Right. Or maybe it makes me happy to go. At some point in time, maybe there won't be anything like this that makes us have these kinds of pictures. Right.
0: It's it's interesting. It's interesting. You talked about several photographers, uh, o- older photographers, to photographers that are long past. Are there any contemporary photographers that you uh, really admire whose work you really
1: like? Yeah, unfortunately, most the of them are German <laughs> or <laughs> Japanese. I would say German um, Gertsky's work is just—it just blows me away. Um, I was in Osaka, Japan, and saw a huge Gertsky show, and. I walked into the museum and I just sat on the floor, and the gallery guard came up and like grabbed me by the shoulders. See my, my son, Are you okay? Are you okay? I'm like, just, you just need to leave me alone so that I can <laughs> just like be with these things. I mean, they were, they were amazing. Um, I would say maybe Thomas Struth, um, another contemporary. Thomas Struth, Struth, another, German? another German.
0: Yeah, another German. What um, is it that you like about German photographers? I just
1: their mindset, I think, has something to do with the kinds of pictures they make. They, they stretch the boundaries on a lot of things. They're, I don't know, they do amazing things. And then I've got a lot of Japanese photographers whose work I really like. Um, you know, the, the standards are like Daido Moriyama, who's an older photographer. But Toshio Shibata, um, Shinpei Takeda, there's, there's so much really interesting work coming out of the the Asian continent that we don't see a lot of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think mostly because a lot of the history books don't touch on that. Yeah. Uh, Miwa Yanagi is a Japanese female photographer whose work is just, it's amazing. I mean, I would say you should look at it. She's, she does incredible things. Give,
0: give the listeners that name again.
1: So Miwa, M-I-W-A, Yanagi, Y-A-N-A-G-I. Yeah, uh, she's fantastic. Her work is, whew,
0: I actually had never seen any really, or, or was conscious of any uh, uh, Asian photographers until you, or until coming to school here. And just they're so far out there compared to the West and what they're doing, and it's uh, it's amazing uh, in Asian fashion, Asian photography, Asian art oh, in general. Such a different mindset. hockey? in fashion.
1: Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> this stuff is so incredible. Yeah, um, yeah. And I and I and I think part of it is you know their history their history is longer. Um, I think the fact that they don't have one-point perspective, which is what we have in the West. Sure. That they're willing to open a can of worms and see what happens, or as I say, stand on the the edge of the abyss and take a step forward. Yeah. Where way too often it doesn't happen here. Oh, I'm afraid I'm going to fail. Yes, so it just means you take two steps backwards and start again. Sure, you know, I mean, sure. I don't think you can learn unless you make mistakes. And maybe they're a, l- a little more willing to make those mistakes than we are. I'm not sure. Yeah. That's no, I like that. Thought. I like that.
0: Uh, when I started here, when I came and shared my portfolio to the director, he said, I can see that you're a very good photographer and that you like to control everything in your image. And uh, he said, we'll make you better. We'll teach you how to let go of control, and and I did, and that was that's it exactly. Willing, be willing to take risks that I might fail, and most often I think if you if you take that risk and do fail, it's a much better lesson. You you learn so much more than if you take the risk and succeed. Oh, that's exactly what I wanted. You don't really learn anything from that.
1: And I agree. And when when we taught traditionally with film, which some programs still do. one of the assignments we used to give is we'd give everybody a 24 exposure roll of film and say, "You got 30 minutes. Goodbye." And what it does is it it takes the thinking part away, and it's more it becomes more reactionary. So sure. I think sometimes that's important is that you know there's a reason why you make you push the button now as opposed to now. Right. There is a reason, and it's whether. I think Brasan says as everything comes inside the frame and starts to make visual sense. And you see it. So there is that ability. And more often than not, it's it's just it's innate. It just happens. Mm-hmm. Why did you take that picture? I don't know, but it works right exactly. And I think we see it all the time when we teach basic students. You have no idea how long I worked on this photograph. It ain't very good.
0: <laughs> and <laughs> right, then
1: you right. pull another one, and you're like, "Wow!" And they go, "Oh, that was just a quick snapshot." Well, that's because you took the thinking part away from it, and you just react.
0: Got out of your head, yeah. and
1: I think that's I think that's important.
0: So, what piece of advice would you give to an artist or a photographer who's just starting out? Shoot a lot. Shoot a lot.
1: Shoot a lot. Yep. Talk to your peers. Um, get critiques, look at work, look at work. I, maybe that's even, even more important is to look. Um, and I don't necessarily think it has to be photographs. I just think looking at things is important. And it it could be in a museum, it could be in a gallery, it could be street art, it could be anything, anything and everything. Um, you're going to react. And I think in reality, as an artist, that's what we want you to do. Mm-hmm. And the reaction doesn't always have to be positive. The reaction can be negative. If it makes you that uneasy, then maybe that was what it was supposed to do.
0: Yeah. And I
1: think that's I think that's key. I think that's key.
0: Do you think um, it may be better to to look at work that makes you uncomfortable?
1: Um, I would say sometimes, yeah because then what you have to do is you have to get to the root of why it makes you uncomfortable. And it could be any number of factors, um, you know, and there's, and there's a lot of examples, you know, I mean, we can pull, you know, you can pull names out of how hat, Andra Serrano or Robert Mapplethorpe or people like that, and you go, oh my God, that makes me uncomfortable. Well, why does it make you mm-hmm. uncomfortable? And then I think once you come to that understanding of why it makes you uncomfortable, then it allows you to look at the work from a little bit more objective point of view.
0: Sure, absolutely, absolutely. All right, I'm good. try to go deep here if I can. Oh my God, okay. <laughs> it's a question that's asked a lot in these kinds of things, but I, I like it, so if you had 60 seconds with 20-year-old Tom as he's going through college or early days of your career, what advice would you give yourself, and why? Whoa,
1: what advice would I give myself? Travel more, travel more. Yep, you um, travel a lot. I travel a lot, but I didn't travel a lot. Well, actually, I did. I didn't travel outside of the United States very much when I was twenty. Okay, but I traveled a lot in the United States. I mean, I've lived, I lived in Alaska, I lived in Maine, I lived in Arizona, I lived in Michigan. I've lived kind of a lot of places. Um, but I think travel is a huge education because if I go to Russia. And I use Russia as an example. I don't speak Russian, but I got to figure it out. Right, right. Um, If I go to Thailand and I've been to Thailand, it's amazing. But how do you tell them? I got to have my food cooked. You can't (laughs) wash it in water. I mean, how do you get that point across? I lived in New Guinea. I mean, how do you function in a society when you don't speak the language? Mm -hmm. You got to figure it out. And I think for me. That's what travel does. It helps you figure things out. I mean, I don't know if you're fluent in Spanish. You were in Barcelona. I I'm certainly not fluent <laughs> in Spanish, but we figured it out. Right, right. You know, we figured out the metro system. We figured out how to get where we needed to go. We figured out the food. We figured out the money. And no, the conversations weren't in depth because their English wasn't fluent and my Spanish was marginal, but we figured it out. And, right. I, again, I think those are the things that are important, is that ability to figure it out. And I think that's what travel does.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think it helps us figure things out.
0: Yeah, I remember you talking about travel. And, unfortunately, I wasn't, I didn't have the opportunity to go to New York when you're taking the students to New York, but um, I've traveled quite a bit since then. And, and it's interesting. You know, we live in a world where we're connected to the entire world through the Internet, through TV, through movies. But there is something so different from... Seeing it on a screen versus being there in person. Oh, for sure. And that really connect connects you to the people, connects you to the culture, and realizing how, as different as we are, we're still we're still all the same. Yeah, we're not that different. It really brings the world, I think, into a perspective.
1: And you know, and you mentioned the Prada. You know, I mean, I remember walking into the Prada, and I'm like, I was, I was overwhelmed. Yeah, and I'd seen all of these things in books and I'd seen them in art history classes and I'd seen them projected it's not the same no. it's not the same no. and you know it's like that, I mean I went to Paris last year for the Paris photo and I went I didn't go to the Louvre, sorry <laughs> but I did go to the Pompidou and I did go to the Orsay and I did go to all these museums and it was just like Oh my God, these are way better in person than they ever can be in a book or a projection. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, it's. I mean, it, I've stood. I mean, I went to Bilbao. I don't know when you were in in Spain if you went to Bilbao to no. the Guggenheim. No, no. And they had a Richard Serra show in the bottom, and I just I love his work, and I I mean I spent like two hours walking through his sculptures. And then I went to the third floor and they had Anselm Kiefer, who's one of my favorite German German painters. <laughs> and I got down on my knees and just like bowed in front of, the, and the gallery guard looked at me and just laughed. But it was, it's just, it's so different to see the things in person.
0: For sure. I think
1: it's so amazing. And it I think you have to do that. I, just, I mean, that's how I feel.
0: Yeah, so I, I was camping once uh, and there was a, an astronomy club uh, camping nearby and they had several telescopes and someone had a 30-inch scope there and um, it was with a Boy Scout troop that I was camping with and some of the boys could care less about looking through that scope and I was I was awestruck because I grew up before the internet and I grew up where I was fascinated to look at the stars and um, I had asked them like why, why don't like this is a you're looking at galaxies far away you're looking at things that you could never see and their response was, "Because I can go online and I can see images that are a hundred times a thousand times clearer and better and more detailed than what I can see through this telescope." And my reaction was, "Yeah, but that's a picture. this is like the real you're actually looking at a real galaxy. How do we how do we help young people or anybody make that determination of looking at a picture is different than looking at the real thing?
1: I think that's I think that's difficult, I think. As you well as you're well aware of, and probably most of the people that are going to listen to this, we're attached to our phones. Yeah. I went I went up to Wyoming to see the eclipse. This is the third one I've seen. They never cease to amaze me. Oh it gosh. was, I don't know, an hour and a half up there, and nine and a half hours getting back.
0: Eleven here. <laughs> uh,
1: but it was incredible. I yeah. mean. All of a sudden, it starts to get dark, and then it becomes twilight, and the cows go back to the barns, and the p- birds quit singing. You're not going to experience that on a screen.
0: Right. You're not
1: going to experience the Perseid meteor shower on a screen. It's it's not the same. It's n- the visceral response to that is not the same. Yeah. Um, I don't care. I mean, I can look at, I can look at it on a, I don't know a jillion inch flat screen, 8K video, DVD, whatever it is, it's not the same as seeing it in person. It's not the same.
0: Yeah, same as travel. Travel's the same, same exact thing. So, uh, what are you working on today? What's coming up for Mr. Fink?
1: I'll have to teach.
0: <laughs> okay, what well, not today, literally. Yeah, <laughs> What's coming up in the future? I just finished a
1: bunch of translations. For a couple of Japanese photographers, uh, for the introductions for their books, so I'm kind of excited to see that. It was a long back and forth um, emails back and forth, and trying to translate Japanese literally into English doesn't work because the language is different, and it doesn't read right. And you obviously want the gist of things to read correctly, but there, but this word has to be in there, but you don't call a photographer a gunman. You don't call him a thief. Well, you could call him a thief, but you don't call him a gunman. Uh, <laughs> you can't use that word. Um, so that, that's fun. So they, I just finished those up, so okay. that's really good. Um, I'm working on um, a couple of, a couple of series of images. One is called the wire. It's basically stuff that blows into barbed wire. And it's, there's a few of those up on the website now. Uh, All the horizons are lined up just like Sugimoto's seascapes. Uh, They're all titled latitude, longitude. So if you think you want to go back there and make the same picture, you can try, but you know how the wind is. Sure. Uh, I'm working on, I mean, still continuing to work on the street, that's kind of, I really enjoy that. I'm working on two other series of photographs, one called The Spaces Between, which are the spaces between the houses in Japan. Mm. And the other is called Quiet Spaces, which is just featured in Deck Unt magazine this month. So it's these spaces where you expect them to be filled with people, and there's nobody. Mm. They're eerily quiet, I yeah. suppose, is the best way to yeah. describe it. So.
0: And if people want to get a hold of you, Tom Fink, we talked about it earlier, T-O-M-F-I-N-K-E dot com is your website. That's the website. You can yep. see your work there, and... Uh, get a hold of you send an email yep. contact information there contact information is there fantastic uh, are you on the other social facebook instagram that i kind am of on
1: facebook um i think wait a minute now i know I you know.
0: have an account there because we're friends I on do. facebook but um, i don't know exactly let's
1: see um my instagram is fink photo f-i-n-k-e photo um let's see It just says Tom Fink on Facebook, so I assume that's me. Okay, search Uh, for Tom Fink, you'll find it. My picture is my two feet. Your feet? Yep, (laughs) right (laughs) next to the beach, so I suppose that's... I'm not a Twitter person, Okay. Um, so right now it's just Facebook and Instagram. I try to post a couple times, two to three times a week on Instagram. Okay. I decide, you know, you don't need to be inundated with five million images. I just figure... Just put the good stuff out there right. and let people decide. So, Right. Yep.
0: Awesome. Uh, any last words or bits of advice or anything you want to share with the Crave audience? Enjoy yourself. Do what you want to do and travel. I love it. We'll end it right there. Okay. Tom, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Anytime, Jen. All anytime. Right. anytime. Good, right. to ya. good to see you. Good to see you. Yep. The music for episode 24 of the Crave Magazine podcast is aptly named Traveler from legendary Japanese artist Kataro off his 2013 album Final Call. Check out Kataro and all of his music wherever you listen to your tunes. Thank you for listening to the Crave Magazine podcast. I am Jim Wills, your host and producer for this episode, and I am on a mission to bring art back to the world. With your help, we can make that happen, so please take a moment to leave a positive review for us on iTunes, and if you like what you heard, even more importantly, tell your friends. If there's something that we can do better, by all means, let us know, and if you are an artist or even just want to hear from a favorite artist, well, send us a message. We are putting this show out for all of us who love and appreciate the arts, so tell us how we can improve. Remember, always be good to one another, and of course, take time to feed your soul with art.